If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. So this month I decided to try one of my many health drives. So that's no more booze, no more biscuits, and no more delicious white bread. But try as I might, every health drive I've ever started has always failed dismally. Even when I changed their name in my head from diet to health drive, I could never resist my temptations. In this week's Philosophy in Action podcast, Ben Snane, a professor of philosophy at the University of Antwerp, is going to present his theory on the fractured mind and hopefully solve all my problems. So how many of you had more drinks yesterday than you should have? So just think back to the point when you thought to yourself, I really shouldn't have that fifth pint. <laughs> uh, but then nonetheless, you went for it. Just think back to that moment, what, what was going through your head. So I think you have, on the face of it, you have two options, right? You can resist the temptation, because you're going to say that, ah, oh, well, so, the, so, so yeah, you've, you've already had your four pints, and then the, the bartender is saying, well, do you, want a, do you want another one? And there you are, what are you going to do? Uh, you can say, oh, no, no, no thanks, tomorrow I have to get up early to go to this really interesting talk. <laughs> um, or you can just say, yeah, sure, what the hell. So you can resist the temptation, you can give in to the temptation. But what I want to really focus on today is a third option, namely, not going to the bar at all. Now, I want to talk a little bit about a key concept in social psychology, which is called uh, trait self-control. So trait self-control is, um, is a numeric value that each of you have. You can take a questionnaire test, and then each of you have a specific value of trait self-control. So some of us are very good at self-control, some other people are not very good at self-control, and there's huge interpersonal variations about this. I, I want to I focus on this a little bit, because here is a, here is a major assumption in, in psychology about this, about trait self-control, namely that it's unchangeable. It's fixed when you were a child, and that's what you're going to work with. That's your ceiling. There's a ceiling to your trait of self-control that's fixed in your early childhood. So whatever your parents were doing, if they did it well, then you have a high tra trait self-control. If they didn't do it well, then you have a low trait self-control. And whether or not, in the bar, you're going to be able to say no to the, to the fifth pint is going to be determined by your trait self-control that's fixed. So I think it's a terrible assumption. It has, uh, like, it's really problematic empirically and scientifically. It's also a very harmful assumption, because if you think that your trait self-control is low, 
because your parents messed you up, then you're not even going to try, right? You're just going to, hey, oh, well, what can I do? I'm going to have to get drunk because my parents were, uh, were not diligent enough in, in raising me. So this is not, this is not just something that, uh, that is, that's, that's very much true in, uh, in like serious scientific papers. You get studies about this when they measure the trait self-control in, ch in childhood and trait self-control in adulthood. And, but also, it's very much a, a kind of pop science narrative when they try to explain why and how you know, people who have low trait self-control as children, they end up unemployed and uh, divorced and all kinds of things like this. Now, one place where you may have encountered narratives like this is the marshmallowology. Uh, so you'll probably have heard about this huge growing literature on these experiments. So the experiment is this. It's really cruel. I think it's one of the cruel... <laughs> one of the... One of, one of the cruelest things that you can do to a kid. So, so this poor child is there sitting for two minutes in front of a marshmallow, and the idea is that you can either eat that marshmallow, that one marshmallow, or you can wait for two minutes, or five minutes, and they vary that, and then you get two marshmallows. And then the question is, what do you do? And what the, what the scientists did, and this is a fairly old experiment, is that they followed these people around and, so, and just kind of checked how they did in life. And the idea, I mean, what they found is that those kids who were resisting the temptation, those kids who were waiting for that second marshmallow, they were these high-flying bankers making big buck, whereas the ones who, who, who caved in, who just went for the one, they were all unemployed and so... <laughs> but what I want to talk about it is, is just basically I want to set this aside, because this trait self-control, there's a big question in, uh, in the social psychology literature about what is, what is it that it measures? What does trait self-control measure? Is it the ability to resist or the ability to avoid? And it's very uncontroversial that it really what it does is that it, it measures the ability to avoid. So the people with very high trait self-control measures, what, they, what they're good at is, is to not put themselves in situations where they get tempted. They, very often, they're actually pretty bad, really awful, at actually resisting the temptations where they are there, when the temptations are there. So whatever, whatever the marshmallow experiments show, and I, I myself think that they don't show anything, they, they're not relevant, because that's, that's about resisting temptation. And really what we're interested in here is avoiding temptation. But then the question is, maybe the, the marshmallow studies are correct, in which case your ability to resist temptation may be fixed throughout life. Again, I think there's a lot of uh, reasons to, to doubt that, but none of that says anything about whether our ability to avoid temptation is fixed. So the question then, if it is not fixed, then how can we change it? How can we make ourselves better at avoiding temptations? And then you have to ask the question, what does it mean to avoid a temptation? How, how do you do that? How do you avoid a temptation? And I think the, the way to avoid temptation is to avoid those kinds of situations where there's a conflict between your self-image and your desire. You have this self-image that you're just not the kind of person who gets wasted on Saturday nights, especially when you have a ticket to exciting events next day. But you have a desire for that pint of beer. So you put yourself in a situation when there's this salient conflict between your desire for the pint and your self-image. But the real problem is that temptations are everywhere, right? I mean, you know, the world is full of temptations. So uh, the only way in which you can consistently avoid temptations is by having a, certain, having a mindset where your desires are uh, very much in tune with uh, what you believe about yourself. And I'm going to use the, the, um, the metaphor of fragmentation to describe this. So here's a metaphor. Imagine, you know, 1,000 puppies in a, in a giant mansion. It's really cute, no? They're just running around. <laughs> but then imagine this. There are these nasty security guards who are 
just cordon off each room, and they don't let the puppies go from one place to the other. So this is, this is the, kind of the, the way the mind is set up. If the mind is not fragmented, then the puppies, our thoughts really, and our desires and beliefs and so on, they just roam around freely, they, there's a certain kind of access to everywhere. Whereas, if your mind is fragmented, then there are certain parts of your mind that are just sealed off. And there's just no communication between some parts of your mind and some, some other parts of your mind. Information, desires, beliefs are put away in this kind of faraway fragments and kept there by this nasty security guard. And if your mind is fragmented, then there will be desires that will conflict with your self-image. And then if you get into a tempting situation, then you're going to act on it. And you're going to find it difficult to, to resist that temptation. And this straight self-control that I've talked about, this measure, is really what, it's, what it measures, what, it's, what it reflects, is the degree of your fragmentation of your mind. So I think that the fragmentation of the mind is a really important thing, independently of the whole temptation stuff. So I'm going to uh, try to say a little bit more about fragmentation. So here is one really bad news that I have to break to you at the beginning. There's a lot of kind of systemic reasons why fragmentation is the norm and not the, not the exception. So all of our minds, they tend to be more on the fragmented side than on the non-fragmented side. And I'm going to give you three reasons for that. One of them is, which I take to be the most important one, is that we change. All of us, we change a lot. And most of the time, we change in a way that we don't notice. So two very quick examples. One of them is the mere exposure effect. So if you're exposed to a certain stimulus, whatever stimulus it is, it's going to, just by being exposed to it without any explanation, it's going to make you like that kind of stimulus more. So if you're exposed to a certain kind of face or a certain color, that's going to make you like that stimulus more. And, and it's also music. So if you're ex exposed to a certain kind of music, that's going to make, that, make you like that music more. So maybe you're a, uh, you're a fan of early music, um, but you go to the mall, and you, you're doing your shopping, and there's Justin Bieber on. Uh, on. That, just by being exposed to that, that's going to make you like Justin Bieber a little bit more. And it happens in such a way that you're not aware of that. So mere exposure effect, the mere exposure can happen unconsciously. So that's one way in which we change in the way that we don't notice. Another way, and that I think is, is really depressing, uh, is about frustrated desires. We all want things that we don't get, right? I mean, that happens. So, uh, so you, you have a desire that gets frustrated, then two things happen. You uh, want that thing more, but when you achieve it, you like it less. So what, what, what follows from this is that if you want something and you're, and you're, not, and you're kind of consistently not being able to get it, then you're not going to be able to enjoy it. You're going to something that you clearly care about because you want to do it is going to give you very little pleasure when you actually achieve it. So you're trained to do the marathon and you you really want to do it under three hours, and you just can't. And you know, it's always three or five, or three or four. And then finally you do it. And then you're, you're, because of your previous failures, you're not going to enjoy it that much. You're going to be like, huh, OK. <laughs> and that's not what you want. I mean, you know, you change your diet. You change your whole daily routine because of that. And then what, what are you going to get out of this? So it's sad. So we change a lot. And there's a very nice experimental evidence for that is at the end of history illusion that measures the, um, the amount of change people anticipate in the next 10 years compared to the, the change that they underwent in the last 10 years. And, they, and people consistently underestimate the change that will happen to them. So we consider ourselves to be the finished product. That's the end of the road for us. You know, we used to be very different, but who I am now, that's, that's what I'm going to be in 20 years. And that's just false. That's blatantly false. So we change, but our self-image doesn't change. Although my preferences about my taste in 
coffee products have changed, my self-image did not change. And with coffee, it's not that important, right? But maybe it's in, kind of in more kind of heavy stuff. It, it does matter. So there's this kind of disconnect that's built in systematically into the system between our self-image, between who we think we are, and who we are. So that is a kind of a very important original kind of source of the fragmentation of the mind. So we all think that we're very good at the things that we care about. Just to stick with my own profession, uh, university professors, I, I think 87% of them think that they're above average <laughs> as a university professor, <laughs> including me. <laughs> so what is it? 37% of us are clearly wrong and delusional. And you keep telling yourself that, yes, you're better than average. But then, of course, reality bites eventually, and you're kind of confronted with evidence that you are not better than average. And then what are you going to do? What are you going to do with this evidence that you're not better than average? Again, you're going to somehow try to stick it away as far away in your fragmented mind as possible. But it's not enough to just kind of exile these pieces of information somewhere. You also have to make sure that you keep it there. You have to employ these security guards so that they don't come back and, and bite you in the backside. So you may ask at this point, how is this different from Freud? Uh, I mean, isn't this, uh, isn't this just kind of a re reheated version of psychoanalysis? And I think that it's very different. In, in the case of psychoanalysis, what's happening is that these inconvenient little facts, they're suppressed in the subconscious and then kept it there, um, but they're, uh, they're in, the in the subconscious. The disturbing thing about the fragmented mind is that these fragments, they don't have to be unconscious. M many of them are conscious. In fact, most of them are conscious. So that's a, that's a bit of a kind of a bad news, good news situation. It's bad news because it means that it's not just the unconscious that we have to worry about that they're going to mess us up. It's also much of our conscious life is going to be fragmented. It's going to be, and we have to actively keep away not just the unconscious bits in our mind, but also the conscious bits. But the good news is that, there's, frankly, there's not much we can do about our unconscious. Freud had a couple of ideas about what we could do. Some of them with varying success, some of them work, some of them don't. But with fragmentation, we, we, given that much of it is, is consciously accessible, there's a much broader range of things that we can try. So no one likes to be a jerk, right? No one likes to be the guy who picks up the, the wallet that's left there and just pockets the money. And Why is it that we don't want to do that? What prevents us from doing that? Let's suppose that you don't believe in God. Let's suppose you even, you're somehow, you, you know, no one's going to see you. There's no uh, repercussions. You know, it's an abandoned tube station. No one, sees, no one sees it. There's no security cameras. Why not just pocket the money? Here is one reason why you should, why you should not be a jerk. Being a jerk contributes to the fragmentation of your mind. Because given that no one likes to have a self-image that I'm a jerk, I'm really doing really terrible things when no one's looking. But if you do these things that are clearly in conflict with your self-image, that's something that, again, you have to somehow put away to a faraway fragment so that they don't disturb your squeaky clean self-image as not a jerk. So even if you're a, like a super moral relativist, there are reasons not to be a jerk. So that's a good thing. So now I'm, I want to talk about something that's very timely, and it's about these epistemic bubbles. The way this term epistemic bubbles is, is used is that there is really just no information from the other side coming in. So you're not exposed to ideas that are coming from the other side. So if you're a uh, Fox News watching conservative, then you just, you're, not, you're just not exposed to the, to the ideas that are on the other side. If you're a Brexiteer, you're not going to be exposed to ideas that are uh, from the, on the remain side and so on. So you get this kind of huge divisions within society, which is a 
enormous problem that I probably don't have to explain to you guys. Now, so what I want to say is that actually things are even more messed up in some ways because these epistemic bubbles are somewhat are kind of easy to shatter. If you force someone to have that kind of information from the other side, then the bubble is shattered. Then there's no more, uh, no more. Um, so if you if you kind of befriend someone who's on the other side of the political spectrum and just tell them, explain to them how uh, how things how you think things are, um, then um, then that's going to be the end of the epistemic bubbles. But I think that really. What's happening here is something different from epistemic bubble. If by epistemic bubble you mean that you just don't get any information from the other side at all. I think we do get information from the other side, but we don't want to know about them. We want to forget them immediately. So if you're a Brexiteer, you, you will know that some of the arguments against Brexit. And the final thing I want to say is about implicit bias. So there's been, you probably know about some of these experiments that are th these uh, famous results about how we, are we have unconscious attitudes towards certain racial and gender groups um, that make us, for example, stand in an elevator at a different distance from uh, people with different skin color. That's something you're not aware of. That's the original story. So again, I think that um, if we go with the fragmentation framework, then things are, again, a little bit even more messed up. Because I think we are, and there's a lot of new, new evidence about this, that implicit bias is not actually implicit. It's not uh, unconscious. We are aware of it when we are kind of uh, pulling away in the elevator from this person and closer to that person. Then we are we are noticing this behavior. Uh, but again, we don't want to we don't want to think of ourselves as racist bastards. So we so we try to kind of dismiss this information and again exile it into a, a kind of a separate fragment. All right. So back to back to temptation. So here is why fragmentation is really bad news. It gives us what is, in a technical term, philosophical vocabulary is known as a double whammy. So, um, so as, as we've seen, fragmentation is really a reflection of how bad you are or how good you are at avoiding temptation. But if, you are, if your mind is fragmented, then there's an extra reason why you're going to be bad at not just avoiding temptation, but also resisting temptation. The reason for that is because, remember, in the fragmented mind, all these fragments, have, they have to be somehow kept separate from your self-image. And that takes a lot of mental effort. But I want to talk about the other way around. What's happening if you do resist temptation? What's going to happen to your fragmented mind? And I turn to an authority about temptations, Oscar Wilde. So here is a quote that's very you know, famous, and uh, rightly so. The only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Resist it, and your soul grows sick with longing for the things it has forbidden to itself, the desire for what its monstrous law have made monstrous and awful. So what, what Oscar Wilde is saying here is that when you're resisting temptations, that's going to actually contribute to what is a pretty good description of fragmented mind, the soul growing sick with longing for the things it has forbidden to itself. So uh, it's not just the case that you're, if your mind is fragmented, you're going to be bad at resisting temptations, but you're going to resist temptations, and then your mind is going to be even more fragmented. So you see that it's going to lead to this vicious circularity. So what to do then? You're there. The bartender is asking you for uh, whether you want a fifth pint. Resisting is clearly bad because that's going to lead to further fragmentation. What do you do? Should you just yield? I mean, that was Oscar Wilde's advice, right? So I think that's also a terrible advice. I mean, it, it, especially in the case of addictions, because we know that in uh, chemical addictions, like substance abuse addictions, the more you, you yield, the stronger your cravings are going to be. So the more difficult it's going to be next time. But even in, in behavioral addictions, and even in things that are not even addictions, there's some really nice results about how the 
the more you lie, the more it's going to be likely that you're going to lie again. I'm going to counter Oscar Wilde with André Gide, so I'm going to do that. So here's an André Gide quote. The first time you steal something, you need to make some kind of decision to do so. For the second time, you only need to yield to temptation. Every time after that, it's just not paying attention. So what we have here is that once you are tempted, you have, you, you have this kind of no-win situation. Because if, you, if you're going to resist that, as we've seen from Oscar Wilde, and actually there's some really nice uh, um, psychological studies that support that, um, that's going to increase the fragmentation of your mind. But if you yield, then you're in danger of actually end up an addict. And it also leads to further uh, fragmentation of the mind. Why? Because if you yield to the temptation, you're still going to be aware of that temptation being there. So what should we do then? So I'm, I don't want to leave you with this kind of terrible, tragic picture of the mind that we're all screwed, it's terrible, we just have no, way, no good choices. It's true that we don't have any good choices once the temptation is there, because resisting is bad and yielding is bad. So that's all the more reason to find a, a way in which we can avoid temptation. One thing that I want to focus on here is that I think it's, you know, the, kind of the, the, the Freudian framework that's been always going on about how, what, you, what you can do about your desires. So if you have this conflict between your desire and your self-image, how you, how you, what, what you're going to do with your desires. I don't think you can do much with your desires, unfortunately. That's your, those are your desires. That's not, not much you can do. What you can do, and something that's got very little focus so far, is something about your self-image. So if you have a really fixed self-image that I'm a vegetarian, I really care about this and that, and this is the kind of person who I am, and I do these things because that's the kind of person who I am, then, it's gonna be, then there's going to be a lot of conflicts between your desires that are going to pop up because you've changed in the meantime, and your self-image. But if your self-image is not as firm or not as essentialist, then you may have a better shot at having a less fragmented mind and be able to avoid temptations. So we do have a kind of a natural propensity to kind of think of ourselves as having these essential properties that are, you know, we wouldn't be ourselves unless we had them. So it's kind of, it's a difficult thing to pull off. But if we manage to not to think of ourselves as these essential beings, the beings that have these properties essentially, and they, uh, if, if they weren't there, then it wouldn't be us. So if we took ourselves less seriously, that may be a good thing. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Can we resist our temptations by avoiding them altogether? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times.